0: This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today along with Megan Kamrick and Sarah Holtz. Later in our show today, Sarah Holtz visits with the executive director of an organization called Parents for Peace, which supports families confronting extremist ideology and violent causes that are targeting young people who are vulnerable to being radicalized, often drawn into extremist causes over the internet. But first, Many of us decry racism and believe we are not racist, but Leila Saad says that isn't enough. Saad is a speaker, writer, and host of the Good Ancestor podcast. Her book, Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World, and Become a Good Ancestor actually grew out of an Instagram challenge where thousands of people reflected on their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors around race. Saad says she wrote the book as an invitation to white allies to understand more about their own privilege and how they often unconsciously participate in racism despite good intentions. Like many people of color, Saad says she got, quote, the talk at an early age from her mother about the challenges she would face in the world as a woman who is black and a Muslim. White children, Saad tells producer Megan Kamrick, don't have these conversations. And that's part of the problem.
1: People of color are told, you'll be treated in this way, in this sort of inferior way. White people are not told you will be treated as superior, but they don't have to be because the world is built in order to to serve them, essentially. And so this leaves many white kids who then grow up into white adults in a situation where they just don't have the ability to be able to have conversations around race with any nuance and are not able to handle the complexities of it. There's this binary thinking of racists are bad people And I'm not a bad person, therefore I'm not a racist. And that's where the conversation ends. Many of us well-meaning white people fall intentionally or unintentionally into a
2: trap of trying to prove we're, quote, Mm -hmm. one of the good Mm -hmm, ones. mm -hmm. Why is it important to recognize this and move beyond it?
1: Sometimes there is such a deep desire to be seen as good that More is put on how something looks than on what something is under the surface. So I'll use the example of when a company's been called out for their branding and marketing that they've used only photos or images or models who are white people. The quick easy fix is to just change up the marketing graphics, add a few more people of color, and then say, that's it, we're diverse now, we're inclusive but they haven't taken the time to look at what led to that even happening in the first place and what else is going on under the surface when you have um white privilege and and as i said you haven't had complex conversations around race white privilege has meant you've been so protected from having to look at race and racism and what your white privilege means for yourself and for people of color and the human nature is that we don't like being uncomfortable and we want to be seen as good it's just this recipe then for if i want to be part of the solution of racism then all i'll do is just do the surface level things so that people will think i'm a good person but not investigate what's lying underneath and i want to reiterate it's not about good. being racist has nothing to do with your intentions about being a good person or being a bad person When we are living within a system that treats one type of person one way and another type of person another way, and the whole of society is built in that way, we're all conditioned into that. No one is free from that. No one is the exception to that, right? Um, I talk about white exceptionalism in the book, this idea that if you've read enough books on race or if you have enough people in your life who are friends, peers, family members who are people of color, if you you consider yourself very liberal or very progressive, that that's enough and that's all it takes to be anti-racist. And it just isn't.
2: On that point, why did you want to use the term for the book white supremacy Mm -hmm. rather than something maybe less hard hitting? You talk about this like white privilege or unconscious bias.
1: Yes. So it would have probably been an easier sell. right? (laughs) 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 But the way that I look at this is we can't talk around the topic. We have to look at it directly. We can't look at it sideways because when we look at it indirectly, we're still afraid of the thing. We're still afraid to really uncover what it means. Whereas when we talk about it directly and take the fear out of it and take the negative connotations or the idea that that only belongs to one type of person. You know, it's often that's those kind of people, but it's not me. Therefore, I can't be associated with white supremacy. White supremacy is not an identity that you take on. Racism isn't something that you can choose or not choose, in the same way that people of color can't say, you know, I don't feel like dealing with racism today. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I don't feel like being impacted by racism today. And so for me, it was this whole process is about telling the truth. And we cannot tell the truth if we're not willing to name the thing directly. But I also wanted to note that you write in the book, and is a quote, do not
2: use this work as a stick to beat yourself mm-hmm. with, but rather use it to interrogate your complicity within a system of privilege that is only designed to benefit you to the extent that you can conform to the rules of whiteness. How do you suggest we find that balance where we aren't just beating ourselves up because it's really easy to just get stuck in that Absolutely. place of shame?
1: This work is really hard and very challenging, and it brings up many different kinds of feelings. And I often talk with people about the difference between shame and guilt, and I know Brene Brown has done extensive work in this in this um, area in the context of this guilt is very very helpful because what guilt says is I have been the beneficiary of a system that a violent system of oppression that has harmed people of color and I have unconsciously often done things that have harmed people of color. And the, what the guilt is telling me is that that went against my values and it went against what I believe, who I believe I am and what I believe I'm here to be. And so guilt tells us that was wrong and I don't want to be a part of it so I can change my behavior. Shame says I should hate myself because I'm a white person. And that is so destructive it's not constructive at all because it leaves you in a state of sort of paralysis essentially and it means that you can't create any change because what's the point if you're you can't escape your white skin right um, so I talk about the, the three things that you need to do this work TLC truth love commitment you need to be able to tell the truth because that's how we get underneath the unconscious stuff and pull it out and be able to deal with it and you need love And that's really important to me. And I think it's something that I have seen so many civil rights activists and, um, you know, change makers in the area of uh, social justice talk about something greater than themselves, something greater than the awful ways that we treat each other to pull us forward. Mm. And I say that, you know, the truth telling will get hard. And when it does, you need something greater than pain or shame to motivate you to keep going. And then the C is commitment. You need commitment because, you know, at some point it's going to be like, why keep going? And then you have to be committed to something greater than yourself to keep going. Part of the title of the book is Become a Good Ancestor. What does it mean to be a good ancestor? So this idea of being a good ancestor was, first wrote, you know, when I published, I Need to Talk to Spiritual White Women About White Supremacy. That journey for me was very difficult because... As soon as I did, it went viral and I suddenly was flooded with emails, comments, DMs of some people who were very happy that it had been written and some people who were very, very unhappy that it had been written. And I got to see in a very magnified way the really ugly side of what racism can look like and what white fragility can look like. And so every day I was having conversations online with people, white people, about racism, and it just almost burned me out. And so in my journey to try and reclaim how can I do this work and not sacrifice myself in the process, I found that I needed something greater than myself to pull me forward. And so this idea of becoming a good ancestor, that this work isn't just about me, it's about people who, the people who will come after me. and That became my purpose and it became my something bigger than me to to pull me forward. And so I put that for me. But what I found is so many people have resonated with Mm. it. And especially, I think, with people who have white privilege, they're coming to the understanding that white supremacy, they didn't create it. It came from the ancestors of the past, but that right now they are living ancestors, And that they have the ability, should they choose to make decisions in their life that may lead them to be in the world differently and teach their children differently and teach other people around them differently, could change the trajectory of the future. You make it clear
2: this will be very difficult work for people who undertake it. And how do you advise people to take care of themselves as they work through internalized
1: racism? Examining this stuff brings up a lot because white privilege protects you from having to think about what being white means and as soon as you start doing this excavation work first of all a lot of people said they felt that they were being more racist as they brought this stuff out because now they were more aware of the thoughts that were always there and so they reported things like they weren't able to sleep very well they were having digestive issues Um, they're having racing thoughts that they felt sort of detached when they would be at school or at the supermarket they just would be very aware of how racism just plays out in very casual, everyday ways. And so that's a lot to be bombarded with um, when you've lived your whole life not experiencing that. And what I say to people is what you're experiencing when you go through that is what people of color are experiencing all the time. And so as I prepare people for this work, I also want them to go into it with the understanding that don't just try and sprint through it and get to the end and be exhausted by the end and then not want to continue after the 28 days are over. Think about this as lifelong change and therefore have the necessary support, you know, and that support can look like having accountability partners or doing the work in groups, and I include instructions for how to do that. You ask in the book, as
2: people are doing this, that, we avoid relying on people of color to help in that processing
1: why yes. is that yeah yeah as a person who has white privilege as you're going through this you may start to realize interactions you've had in the past with people of color in your life where you thought something was fine at the time and now that you're reflecting and now that you're learning you're realizing oh no that was probably racist or it. Was me using my white privilege in a way that was harmful, and you may want to process with that person mm. and and go and approach them and say, "Hey, you remember back in you know this day when we did the, when this happened? Can I talk to you about it?" And that's so unfair mm. to people of color to hold that space for you because if they didn't say anything to you about it, they probably had to let it just slide off their back and just not process it for themselves because it's too much, and. For you, it may be a way for you to work out, figuring out, you know, what your unconscious racist beliefs are. For them, it's a reminder of what it means to be impacted by racism. If there are people of color in your life and you want to have these conversations with them, first of all, you need to understand that the toll of emotional labor it's going to require of them. And then secondly, if they do say yes, that you have to make sure that they are giving clear consent and that they understand what they're consenting to because it's not an intellectual conversation for them. It's a very real life lived embodied experience for them and it's not fair to put that on them.
2: Um, Race is actually a social construct as Mm -hmm. you point out it's not an actual biological fact. How can that help us understand the resulting constructs of something like white privilege?
1: Yeah so biologically We are one race, the human race. Socially, we have these social constructs of of race, and they mean things. It means something to be white. It means something to be black. And when we try to skip over that and sort of just say, well, let's act as if the biological fact is how life plays out. And and use that as a way to practice anti-racism, which is what I see a lot in the spiritual world of, you know, we're just one race, the human race. Inside, we're all the same. So let's just act like that and not address inequality and not address racism. Nothing changes. Everything stays exactly the same. You have to actually deconstruct racial constructs. And it's an easy out for people who have white privilege to not do the work. And so people of color will continue to be impacted by racism and people who have white privilege continue to receive that privilege. And so we can hold both at the same time. We
2: can and, aspire to that, We but can be yeah. real about what the right. world is. We can yeah. be
1: real about what the world is. You know, when I, when I live my life in my own anti-racism work, because my anti-racism work is to also unlearn what white supremacy taught me about me. So when I live my life, I hold the two truths that I live in a world where being black means I will be treated in a certain way. And at the same time, I live in a world where none of that is true. That it's not true that I'm lesser than. And so we we have to be able to sit with the both and, not the either or. How does white privilege show up even
2: if someone might be in another marginalized group? So they assume they don't have privilege.
1: Yeah, so they don't cancel each other out. Even if you're Dirt poor, you know, first kid to go to college. Because white privilege is the privilege that comes from being white. You don't lose white privilege because you belong to another um, group that experiences marginalization, such as being poor or um, being LGBTQ. But it also doesn't mean that you're not impacted in those other areas of real life. And sometimes what happens is, and I've had this conversation as well in many of the cities that I've been in on my tour, where people have said, it's very hard to have the conversation around white privilege in, for example, the LGBTQ space or the disability space or with people who grew up um, poor because they don't feel privileged. And of course they don't because they experience marginalization at those other intersections. But I often think about it as, okay, so say you have an identity that does experience marginalization. How much more oppression would you experience if you're also black rather than white? You write that if we do not see
2: ourselves as part of the problem, we cannot be part of the solution. And I I found that a really powerful way to frame the idea of why we need to examine our complicity with white supremacy. This is important when we talk about white fragility, which you brought up several times. What is
1: white fragility and why is it so damaging to racial equity? Mm. So white fragility is a term coined by Robin DiAngelo, who wrote the book Mm -hmm. White Fragility, and she wrote the foreword to my book as well. It's Basically, it's the inability to have any kind of racial conversation without being triggered by it. And it comes from, as I said, not having learned how to have racial conversations throughout your entire life. And so when a a racial conversation is brought to you, whether directly to you because of something you've done, or just when it's a conversation about white people in general, she talks about it as a, a range of defensive moves is triggered. You might get really angry get really sad feel like you're being attacked cry feel like you need to leave the room you know shut down whatever it is it's that fight flight you know freeze response because you don't know what to do with Mm -hmm. it and white fragility is such a hindrance to the dismantling of white supremacy because it stops the conversation immediately it means that we can't even have a conversation around it because you have become so shut down that you are unwilling to hear And so what happens is a person of color may share this racist thing that happened to them or share about how a certain situation is racist. And a white person may take it as a personal attack on them as a person instead of being able to understand how white supremacy as a system works and how they're impacted by it. And so the conversation goes nowhere and it it just stops there. Are you hoping working through a process like yours
2: would build resiliency yes. so you could have these conversations.
1: Yes, yes. Okay. And and Robin D'Angelo talks about this, the importance of of resiliency. But yes, this is what I'm hoping is that As people go through the process and are able to start interrogating just different aspects of it, they begin to see it's not me being a bad person. She's not calling out me for being a bad person. She's saying every single one of us has been impacted by this system. A lot of times people who hold white privilege have a lot of unconscious racist thoughts and beliefs. And so if a situation occurs, for example, you see a black person in a space you weren't expecting to see them in. Your first unconscious thought is often a racist one, but you recognize that isn't right. And so you replace it with a second thought, which is not racist. What this process does is help you to see the first thought. And so that's why a lot of times people feel like they're being more racist as they go through the process, because they've become aware of the first thought.
0: More from Megan Cameron's interview with Leila Saad, author of the book, Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World and Become a Good Ancestor. Coming up after a short break here on Peace Talks Radio. you're listening to peace talks radio we're online at peacetalksradio.com that's peacetalksradio.com with all of our programs dating back to 2002 including this one shortly we'll hear sarah holtz's interview with miriam churchill of parents for peace which works to help families be alert to the warning signs of family members who might be vulnerable to being drawn into extremist causes and what to do when they do tumble down that hole but right now, we continue with Megan Kamrick's interview with Leila Saad, who's offering tips for all of us to reduce the scourge of racism in our society.
2: Layla Saad, when people work through the different components of your book, Me and White Supremacy, such as white privilege, white exceptionalism, you constantly ask us to step back and consider what's normalized. For example, we can walk into a bookstore and always find books uh-huh. by white authors or go to movies, always see people who look like us, not necessarily see a lot of women. But anyway, Mm -hmm. it's basically helping us understand that we have race. How does that rewire
1: our thinking? Well, white people are often raised to believe that they are not a race and everyone else is a race. So black people are a race, brown people are a race, but to be white is just to be a person. Mm -hmm. And to be a person means... There's no white privilege. You're just a per- in quotes just a person. There, you, there's not. There's no impact of the system on you, and what this process does is for peop- is is help people to see. No, you are a race too, and in this equation, in this in this system, what your race means is you receive, as Peggy McIntosh has, has coined this term of white privilege, you receive white privilege, and what white privilege is is this package, invisible package of unearned assets that you can count on cashing in each, each day. When you're having a bad day, you don't have to question, did my bad day have racial overtones? When you need to seek legal assistance or medical help, you don't have to worry about, will my race work against me? When you're going to the hair salon, you don't have to worry, are there going to be people in there who can handle my hair? Simple, small, everyday things that you don't have to think about that people of color do have to think about. Much of this work
2: involves examining our reactions. Mm -hmm. How does this help us pause and do the work?
1: Yeah, you can't pause if you don't realize you're even having a reaction. And so in going through the process, people learn terms so that they can begin to understand the reaction that they're having. When you understand the response I'm having is a response of white fragility, and it is a response many white people have, it's not just me, then you can really step back and question, okay, why am I having this response and what does it mean? So. In going through the process, you begin to learn these different terms and how they show up. And that can be a way for you to critically self-examine what's actually going on when I'm getting angry, when I'm getting upset, when I'm not knowing how to deal with the situation, or when I'm confused about what's actually going on. Now I have terms and understanding. You have chapters on
2: white silence and white saviorism. In the first, you write that no matter what level of power or influence we have, our voice is needed, mm. but not as white saviors. Yes.
1: Explain the difference here yes. and how trying
2: to do the first could lead to people mistakenly doing the second.
1: Right. <laughs> and people really struggle with this because, again, it becomes that either or. Am I supposed to speak up or am I not supposed to speak up? And so before I even get into sort of defining that and what, how, how to figure it out, I think it's really important for people to understand there's no checklist for how to do this work perfectly. Every situation is so unique. Sometimes it is appropriate to speak up. Sometimes it is not appropriate to speak up. And you will have to judge that. And sometimes you'll get it wrong and make mistakes and be called out for it. And when that happens, don't get frustrated and say, well, I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't, so I won't do anything. Making mistakes is part of the work. But when it comes to white silence, which is staying silent when you see racism happening, and white saviorism, which is this, desire to want to save black and brown people, swooping in to save the day. When you see something racist happening, it is up to you to say something. Because often in a situation where if the person of color is maybe one of the only people there and everyone else is white, when they speak up, that person of color speaks up and says, this is racist, oftentimes they will be gaslit and told, this wasn't really about race, why are you playing the race card? They didn't mean it that way. But when a white person will stand in solidarity with them, which is what allyship is to back up their voice, that person of color knows that they're not alone, and so that's very, very important. But even also when a person of color isn't there and maybe it's just white people and racism isn't happening, say something. Mm-hmm. you know you know it's wrong, say something. White saviorism is it's very important to interrogate the intention behind which you may be trying to do something. Are you doing it because you want to look like the good white person? Or are you doing it because it's the right thing to do? And furthermore, in trying to help, are you taking the stance that I know what's best for them? Or am I consulting with them and and asking how may I be of service? And I'm so grateful for the people in my life who do that. You know, who asked me how? How can I support you in this situation? Would it be helpful if I did this? Would I help be helpful if they did that? And they give me the choice. Intent often comes up in these conversations about race
2: when people are called out. They might say, "But I didn't mean X, Y, or Z." How can we shift that conversation mm-hmm. to focus on the harm? Yeah, that resulted, regardless. Many of teachers,
1: intent? many teachers in this work, often talk about the difference between intent and impact, right? That. You may not intend to be racist, but your impact is racism, and it's very important to separate the two. Your intention is, for many people, to be a good person, for the vast majority of people. But the impact is that whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not, white supremacy exists, it impacts you, and it shows up in your thoughts and beliefs, and then it shows up in your behaviors. People really need to get out of this, but I'm not trying to be a racist. Because once again, it shuts down the conversation. right? If I were to bump into you, my first reaction is, I'm so sorry. It wasn't my intent to bump into you, but I did. And I apologize because I may have knocked you over or hurt you. Carry that metaphor over to, of course you didn't mean to be racist, but your impact is. And so work needs to be done around that. How is doing this personal work
2: necessary in order to address racism at a systemic level and create
1: a better society, basically? A lot of people often feel like, if I didn't create this system, and I don't hold any kind of political power or institutional power, what does it have to do with me? I can't dismantle it. There's nothing that I can do. And what I want people to understand is institutions and systems are upheld by individual people. And so when you begin to interrogate within yourself and really look at yourself and create change from within, you change how you show up in the world, but we can't do it from the outside in. It has to start from the inside out. And why I say that is we have absolutely had progress in the world where discriminatory and racist laws that existed before no longer exist, or no longer exist in the form that they existed in before, right? If it was just about changing the law, then we just wouldn't have racism. Mm -hmm. But we continue to have it because of what's going on within each individual person. And so that's for me where this work starts from is look within you first, because if you as an individual hold white privilege, that means you as an individual are also unconsciously in some way causing harm to people of color. That's where you hold the power to to create change. And I really want people to feel empowered to create change as individuals. I, I wanna end by just saying the work is challenging, and it and it is hard, and you will feel all kinds of feelings, and you will feel unrewarded, and you will feel like, am I going to get something out of this? Do I get a certificate? Do I get something at the end of it? Don't and you cookies. don't. You don't get a cookie. You don't get <laughs> anything at the end of it. But here's what you do get. You get you get to live your life according to your actual values. Your actual values being. I want people to be treated equally, and I don't want to cause harm, or I want to cause less harm. And you, you get that gift, which is priceless. And so when you're going through this process, if you choose to do this book and you choose to do this work, have that in mind, that even as you're going through this, and as difficult and challenging as it is, that first of all, it's not as hard as being impacted by racism. And secondly, the gift of it is that you get to live your life according to, to being the person that you want yourself to be. You're not just seen as good, but you're actually doing good.
0: That was Layla Saad speaking with producer Megan Cameron. You can find out more about her book called Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World, and Become a Good Ancestor, and also a link to her Good Ancestor podcast, all on our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can also hear Megan's complete interview with Layla Saad there as well. Look for our March 2020 episode. On now to part two of our program. The search for identity, purpose, and belonging are essential as young people grow into adulthood, but these motivators can just as easily be exploited to violent ends. Parents for Peace is a national nonprofit organization working to prevent such outcomes. The group supports families confronting extremist ideology and violence in young people. Sarah Holtz spoke with the executive director of Parents for Peace, her name is Miriam Churchill, to learn about the group's vision and strategies. And first, Miriam explained how she initially became aware of the widespread issue of extremism.
3: I am a half French Moroccan with a Muslim father and a Christian mother, and um, I'm I'm a trained uh, therapist. And I've worked for many years in uh, mental health issues I've worked in psychiatric units I worked in a human trafficking uh, field in Marseille I also worked with you know helping young women uh, uh, that would end up in sex trafficking After Charlie Hebdo's attack in France, I became extremely uh, concerned about what was happening, and I wasn't really understanding much about the problem of extremism. And I think that, um, as everybody else, I was frightened and very angry. Uh, And then, uh, because I'm based in Boston, and, uh, you know, after the marathon bombing, I was Extremely more and more uh, worried about what was happening. So I want to learn more about this issue, and uh, and I wanted to help. And so I was seeking to do something about this uh, issue, and until I found out about Pants for Peace. So. Um, since I was based in the United States, uh, I started uh, speaking uh, to Mr. Bloodso, uh, who is the founder of Pants for Peace, and his daughter, Monica Holley. So when I met them, I honestly didn't know what I was going to find out. I think that I was, just like many people, perhaps very judgmental and very... Scared about this issue, very upset about why those kids were harming so many innocent people and including themselves. And so when I met the Bloodsoe family, who are African American based in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, I just realized that those were incredibly wonderful loving family and have been very supportive to their son Carlos and so when their son Carlos in 2009 um, converted to Islam and became groomed uh, and recruited into extremism uh, they didn't really understand what was happening Uh, the big flag was when he took down the pictures of Martin Luther King in their house uh, and for an African-American family that was very upsetting and, and very worrisome. Uh, and they didn't really understand what was happening and why the changes were happening uh, into Mr. Blatso's son. He became agitated. He would be giving a hard time to his sister the way she was dressed. Uh, he wanted to the whole family to convert into Islam. Uh, He ended up going to Yemen and got further more radicalized, came back to the United States, shot two people uh, at a recruitment center, um, a a military recruitment center. One was wounded and one uh, died. Uh, So now today he's serving a life sentence. Uh, The family were overwhelmed and uh, shocked and they just didn't understand what was happening to them and they had really nowhere to ask for help, um, and uh, everybody was judgmental around them. So they founded Parents for Peace because first of all, they wanted to find out whether there were other families like them that struggled with the same issue. Uh, 2009, people didn't know much about this issue. So when I uh, joined Parents for Peace, the first thing that I have done is to look for other family members that were impacted by extremism and it was the first uh, eye-opener for us to find out that not only there were many families in the United States, but those families came from different background uh, and different religious and ethnic background. Uh, Those people were also from very different political background. Uh, We were talking about a sample of what America is. What was very clear was that those families have been trying to seek for help and they struggled alone to do something about this issue. So the clarity became that we had to bridge that gap and uh, so we start uh, putting together Uh, a protocol uh, to launch uh, the first and only national helpline, non governmental national helpline in the United States to be able to equip families and communities to uh, have some help. Uh, And it was very clear to us that uh, as soon as people uh, reach out for help, as soon as we can help them, so this is what we have done. Uh, of course, we had no idea about how it was going to work out. Uh, and what we have done is the protocol for the helpline uh, was created based on the insights of the families and, uh, and and former extremists from all ideology for us to be able to see about, uh, you know, to use their their experience and their insights so we can help other families. We were very uh, surprised about the outcome and how families were reaching out to us from all over the country and from issues of different ideology. Uh, so that was a big win for us. At the same time, it was a little bit concerning because our the organization was small with very limited resources. So we had to work with what we uh, what we had.
4: How is the helpline going these days? Like, what do those relationships look like?
3: First of all, what we what we have learned is that many people in this country, from very different backgrounds, people that would have never met, were speaking about the same issue. A young person that is struggling with uh, with mental health issues, with identity issues, with really profound and sad struggles that, you know, if you're a parent of a teenager, you will see those issues in any, you know, in any kind of circumstances, you know, that have nothing to do with extremism. So what we have learned and that surprised us the most in the helpline is that, parents, uh, friends, communities were calling about issues that have to do with bullying, kids on the spectrum, uh, kids that were dealing with uh, racism or mental health uh, issues. uh, And that extremism really looked more and more like a drug of choice. And, uh, and from a, someone like me that, uh, that have worked as a clinician for over 30 years and worked in, in patient unit, outpatient unit, and with young people that were struggling with different kind of issues, this looked very similar. And it looked like a déjà vu for me, which surprised me. I just didn't expect that, to find this out. Uh, and it gave me also a different perspective I started with thinking of this issue as a terrorism issue uh, because this is what you would hear in the news media and from politicians. But what I was finding out is that those were common family members calling about just regular kids and with regular issues that we all have heard of. And I think that. Uh, it gave us the more the guidance and direction about how to help those families, and we were in the right path. That, you know, that the help that's needed to be provided for those scholars and those family members is to find out the roots of where things starts going in, in the wrong way, and to start really kind of uh, almost doing a forensic uh, investigation about who were those kids uh, before they became extremists, you know, what they looked like in their, you know, when they were at at their best and uh, how do they understand, you know, what had been going on. So the families or the callers and our team are working together to just figure out about how this is started and, uh, and also to start working on the bridges that could help reconnect the young person that's struggling with extremism with their loved one to kind of really rebuild those bridges when things were well. And so our intervention had to be as tailored uh, to try to win the person that is struggling with extremism.
4: Yeah, and I know it's a, quite a big age range too. I mean. How young does this public health issue start? And in terms of these interventions, how how do you differ your techniques based on whether the person is at the young end of the spectrum or the older kind of teenage end?
3: So I can just tell you, but for instance, uh, two weeks ago, you know, we had callers about you know about a young boy that is as young as eleven years old, uh, which is extremely concerning, and the oldest can be in their twenties it's true that there is also older, much older kids. But what we are seeing more is kids that are in from middle school, high school and college age. So it's actually a good news to have this information because it's very specific. And we can understand that you know the teenage brain is in that situation to not Necessarily make the best uh, decision, and uh, also easy to be exploited, and this is also a very tricky uh, age, you know, uh, for identity. Um, What we have found out also is, you know, uh, is that people that are uh, in rural area don't necessarily have access to people to help them uh, diagnose their children or to be evaluated. So they are being left alone uh, with this issue. Uh, We were very surprised and lucky to see that people are finding us from the rural area So our organization is very small and there is so much that needs to be done and that can be done, you know, to be part of the solution. And I would say that today, uh, you know, I would have given you a different answer, maybe the answers even like a year ago. But today I can tell you that uh, if we really educate the general public and also the mental health uh, professionals. And then we get the attention that this is a public health crisis. There is so many things that we can do and then we can reverse. Um, You know, I come from the generation of HIV when HIV didn't even have a diagnosis and a name. And something that I have learned is that as human being, uh, we don't learn lesson when these crises. We turn on each other, and fear can do a lot of damages, you know. And we end up blaming each other. The issue become politicized. It become a religion issues. And we have seen it in HIV where uh, the gay community was blamed. And, you know, and as a result, the virus spread stronger and harder and killed many more people until it became a public health, uh, you know, issue. And then when we realized that actually the grandma and kids also were, you know, uh, diagnosed with HIV, and then we had to pay attention of the public health issue, so we can uh, give some public health uh, answers, um, you know, also by uh, going to this, you know, taking this path. It also help people not feel defensive, you know, because what the last thing we want to do is stigmatize people or communities. And so it's a very tricky thing because in one hand, we want to be able to let people know that their loved one are being targeted. You know, for, for instance, uh, young boys that are in the spectrum, we are seeing, you know, uh, a phenomena happening here. But at the same time, we don't want uh, those kids to be stigmatized, you know, because it's not just about mental health. It's really many different pieces about that it's identity it's also feeling bullied it's you know there's just so many different things uh but in our at our level all we can do is to really uh, you know encourage our country to take a public health approach so at least we can prevent that very sad uh, and heartbreaking issue
0: we're hearing from Miriam Churchill, Executive Director of Parents for Peace, organization that helps families confront the violent extremism that reaches out toward family members. Our conversation with her continues after a short break. Peace Talks Radio is on the air. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. And now we resume our conversation with Miriam Churchill of Parents for Peace. Sarah Holtz is hearing about how they help families confront the tentacles of violent extremism reaching toward family members.
4: Yeah, and I know I've read, too, that it's a a lot about appealing to a person's need for, you know, identity and belonging and a purpose. And how do you combat those kind of drives? Because I I know that a lot of people and young people who fall Pray to extremism. It's, it's that sense of identity and belonging that they're looking for.
3: Yeah. So um, what is also uh, interesting to me is that I have seen cases of uh, young Muslim boys and also uh, white non-Muslim uh, kids, boys, that I could say are identical issue about feeling that they don't belong because we always have like this prepackaged concept that that uh, people look a certain way when they don't belong when actually it's very much untrue uh, when people are struggling with the identity where they feel they don't fit in whether it's a Muslim brown kid or a white non-Muslim kid it's very much the same, and I have seen and witnessed so many times their struggle about being uh, bullied, about feeling that they are uh, not uh, good enough to be part of uh, a group or a friendship, and this anger, this hopelessness, this feeling locked in, you know, creates damages, create depression, create anxiety, create maybe the desire to self-medicate. Or, or self-harm. And we see it all the time with kids that have nothing to do with the issue of extremism. So what I want to tell you is those are very similar. I, I know the media is showing different stories, but I can assure you that those are very similar. Unfortunately, in, in those teenagers don't necessarily have skilled skill to reach out to someone for help, to their parents. There is the feeling of shame, so they just put up with it until it's too much. And they need to find a way to release all this. And often they become secretive and they don't go see their parents or their best friends. They just struggle with it. Um, and so going online becomes a way of, releasing all that struggle the same way some kids will self-harm or use drugs you know they will go and then find out other people that can understand them and and they will find those people uh, you know and they will recruit them and I know that um, often we have blamed technology for this issue but I want to tell you that technology becomes just that this living room where people go to find a way out of their suffering, because the grooming and the recruiting really happened, you know, in our houses, in our communities, in our schools, and and we need to really remember that it happens in the real world before it happens online.
4: I spoke with your operations director about sort of this false dichotomy that folks kind of draw between white supremacy and terrorism, and like how you know you're trying to reframe it as. You know, there's Muslim supremacy and white supremacy. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, so um, terrorism, it, it, it is something real. And this is an issue that is extremely complex that have different piece of it. For us, what we are trying to focus is where we can make an impact and a difference. And what I mean by that is the kids in the United States and in the West are when they are being recruited into Muslim supremacy or white supremacy, uh, the reason why is a very much, uh, you know, a, a health and a public health uh, uh, angle. Uh, we cannot tackle, you know, the rest of the problem, you know, we, we are not law enforcement and we are not, you know, uh, we cannot really focus on on the complexity of that uh, I- issue. But what we want to focus on, it's something that we can make a difference and it's it's mainly to uh, make sure that we, prevent, we help prevent that young vulnerable people don't get, don't get into any kind of supremacy uh, because of uh, them being ruined and, and recruited. So the term of uh, Muslim supremacy have been created by our members that are former Muslim supremacists. Uh, and the reason why is because when we speak about white supremacy, everybody understand what we are talking about. Um, The issue about people that are Muslims or are converting into Islam, it's been very complicated to narrow it down. And as a result, people didn't really like it to feel targeted as Muslims. So for the former Muslim supremacists, they felt like it's really a way to be able to clarify about what we are talking about.
4: Yeah, and I'm also so curious, How do you approach conversations with people who are resistant to this idea that extremism among young people is a public health crisis and that framework that you talked about, that it's a drug of choice? How do you approach conversations with folks that don't necessarily agree with you on that? So what I would the
3: way I would approach them, I would say, come and speak to all our members that are all over the country and that are all, that are all over Europe and Canada come speak to them and you will find out that every single one of these person they will recognize themselves when you um, when you meet the members of Parents for Peace, you will see uh, Muslim immigrants. You will see white Christians. You will see African American Baptist Christians. You will you will see every religion, every color, every ethnicity, and people that are voting in a very very different way. So, what is extraordinary about our organization is we we represent every single person in the United States. And some of them are pro-guns, some of them are against guns, some of them, I mean, we are the entire diversity of this country. And what is amazing is when we come together, we are in the same page because every single one of them have been affected and impacted by extremism. So what I would say for people that want to debate us is to say, come and meet all our members.
4: I know that you've had national gatherings in places like D.C. I'm curious, um, you know, obviously you don't need to name names or anything, but if you could share a story with us of a time when you saw healing occur in one of those groups. So, for instance,
3: uh, amongst our members, you know, as as uh, I've mentioned, you know, they come from, you know, uh, different kind of ideologies, issues. And one of, you know, uh, the success story is that one of our member that was, that is a former neo-Nazi, and another one that is a former uh, a Muslim supremacist, reach out to our member, our newest member, um, Chris Buckley, who is uh, a former KKK member. He's a vet- veteran from Afghanistan that came back with PTSD and, and a lot of issues of drug addiction. They helped him to leave the clan. And for us, this is the most uh, successful uh, story about, first of all, what we are talking about, the story of each of our members, but also what people don't know when we get callers from the helpline. Those are very similar stories. And what I what I'm saying here is that people can change their hearts when they are healing. People, you know, can go from being a proud KKK member to being the most activist with friendship with people that are Muslims, you know, uh, from immigrant communities, you know, from people that they would have uh, hated in the past, and and really hands on uh, doing everything they can to repair. Uh, what's, you know, their oldest, their older uh, belief. But for us, uh, what is a success story is to see when people are addressing their wounds uh, and being willing to take responsibility for them, healing them, and being part of the solution. You know, in fact, is reversing the sad story of what uh, groomers and recruiters do to uh, young people is that they are using and exploiting their vulnerability. Chris, when he came back from from Afghanistan, he came back witnessing, you know, when his friend uh, with a bullet in his head, and and the horror of the of the war. He came back home um, really struggling with PTSD with with the horror stories so what did he do he medicated himself he used drugs and then what best person to groom and recruit into extremism and by the way any kind of extremism it's the same thing with muslim supremacy people are using the suffering of a person as an entry point to get them and become you know uh, one of the person they are using
4: I'm wondering too. You're a small nonprofit with, um, you know, somewhat limited resources. But I'm wondering what some of your hopes and goals are for the future of the organization and how you hope to grow your mission.
3: So um, we have been able to accomplish a lot with with very little. Uh, and uh, and what I mean by that is we've been able to be working with uh, Congressman Keating, you know, to really uh, make sure they understand this issue. And today we are uh, working with Congressman Kennedy, who is interested in mental health and public health, and we are very much excited about this. Uh, We have briefed the law enforcement so they understand from the family members and former's angle. And today we really are uh, focused on, you know, we we spoke to two mosques, and it was an interface uh, event that was sponsored by the police, which was, fantastic you know when you see communities coming from different religion and and uh, including with the law enforcement you know coming all together all kind all, all part of society coming together to be briefed to be open and to be very much willing to be part of the solution for us this is a successful story what we look forward to is to have more people to help us to sponsor our work. We are developing tools and programs to help with prevention. And I know that this is going to make a big difference and big impact in school system and also into the health system. One of the challenge for us is the limitation of uh, staff and uh, and financial support. Uh, we are non-governmental because we want to remain independent, so we can keep doing great work. Uh, at the same time, you know, we really need the help of more groups uh, to come together and and give us a hand on what we are developing. Uh, we are we are about we will be launching hopefully this spring. Uh, Hate Hate Anonymous that is based in the model of uh, AA and NA uh because we are treating uh hate as another addiction uh Chris Buckley uh who is a former KKK member and veteran said uh, to us, that he was addicted to drug and alcohol the same way he was addicted to hate, and for us, it does make sense. Um, these uh, we are also developing uh, tools. Uh, Mubin Sheikh, one of our members who's a former Muslim supremacist, we are developing uh, kits and um, and uh, tools to uh, be able to equip schools and health uh, programs uh, to bring prevention just the same way we have done it with HIV, for instance, in early stage and looking forward what we would like is to really welcome uh, the general public to come and help us, help us to be part of the solution. We are very much convinced that if we all carry uh, a part of this uh, heartbreaking issue, we can really make a large impact the same way we have done it with HIV you know, I, I would say uh, encourage people to get educated, uh, you know, uh, so they,
0: you know, so they can be helpful and to be part of the prevention. To hear the entire interview that Sarah Holtz did with Miriam Churchill, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's where you'll also find photos, a downloadable link to this program, partial transcripts, links to other websites and resources. You look for our March 2020 episode, and you'll find it there. That's peacetalksradio.com. And importantly, you can find a donate button there. When you click on it, you're on your way to supporting the nonprofit work of Good Radio Shows Incorporated and Peace Talks Radio to help us have the resources to continue this program into the future. We also get support from businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center, Chiropractic by Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Dave's Moses is our executive director. For Sarah Holtz and Megan Kamrick, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.